Post Reports is brought to you by Purina. Purina cares about a clean future. That's why they have hundreds of recipes crafted without artificial flavors or preservatives. On top of that, they are committed to using more recyclable pet food packaging. Learn more at Purina.com cares. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Darcy. I wanted to pick your brain on the truck. Hi, my name's Jenna Johnson. I'm this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, July 16th. Today, how HIV research paved the path toward a COVID vaccine, a new book by the president's niece, and life inside the NBA bubble. In the early 1980s, there began to be basically case reports of young, otherwise healthy men kind of showing up in hospitals with really mysterious infections of rare aggressive cancers, pneumonias. In 1984, they identified the virus that was causing this epidemic. First, the probable cause of AIDS has been found. A variant of a known human cancer virus. Second, and that sparked federal health officials to announce that, you know, this was a moment of great hope and that they would soon be able to develop a vaccine for testing. They estimated within two years. Uh, opens up for the first time, I think, the real possibility that we may be able to develop an intervention system. Obviously, uh, it is now... So 36 years later, and there is no vaccine. So in some ways, that's a cautionary tale about how biology can outwit our efforts and how, you know, scientific hubris can get ahead of where we really can make progress. But in fact, all of the science, all of the medical research and knowledge and infrastructure we've gained from trying to create an HIV vaccine is basically the reason that the coronavirus vaccine effort can go so fast. I'm Carolyn Johnson, and I'm a science reporter at The Post. Wait, so why is it that there is this link between a potential COVID vaccine and the efforts to come up with an HIV vaccine? There's not currently an HIV vaccine. But it's the decades of research into HIV that are giving scientists more confidence that we're going to be able to create one for coronavirus. HIV has taught us so much about the immune system, about how to make vaccine technologies that really work, kind of just troubleshooting and perfecting those technologies that can now be turned to coronavirus, and building a worldwide infrastructure of clinical trial networks that can be used to test these in in tens of thousands of people. If we didn't have all of this experience and all of this infrastructure, it could take years to build it, but we have it. And that is one of the benefits of the investment into HIV over the years. So did you talk to some of the researchers who are working on a COVID vaccine in terms of how their experiences and their knowledge and approach to coming up with a vaccine was shaped by HIV? Definitely. And it ranges the whole gamut because vaccine development is both a scientific laboratory kind of 
process, but it also goes up to clinical trials and how do you test vaccines in large numbers of people? Every part of that is being shaped in some way by the experience with HIV. So that means that basic scientists who are designing vaccines and testing them in animals, you know, those people, some of them have spent their entire career mostly focused on HIV and just jumped into the coronavirus vaccine race when... Hmm they saw this emerging threat in January in China. You also have this giant infrastructure that the U.S. has built to test HIV vaccines and other prevention drugs. And this is so crucial because running a clinical trial, so these large clinical trials that will tell us whether the coronavirus vaccines work and and are safe are going to be 30,000 people each. That's a lot of people that you need to get into a trial. It has to be a diverse population that really represents who's affected by coronavirus. Hmm. And we have that infrastructure sort of ready. And the experience HIV has both the things that they've done right and the things they've done wrong in trying to engage communities that are at risk for HIV is an experience that they're hoping is really going to help them with coronavirus. Uh, Some of the same kind of underserved and minority communities that are hit hard by coronavirus are, are, there's a big overlap with the people who are Hmm. disproportionately affected by HIV. But then If the fact that we haven't actually successfully come up with a vaccine for HIV yet, if that is still a black mark on our abilities to successfully develop vaccines, then why are people so hopeful about a COVID vaccine happening in the next six months to a year when this HIV vaccine has been so elusive? HIV is a really different virus than SARS-CoV-2. Not to diminish what's happened nationwide and over the world, but it's in some ways an easier target. That's what scientists are banking on and see in the way the virus behaves. So HIV is just, it's devious. It integrates into our cells. It mutates quickly. It has all kinds of ways of outwitting our immune system. So you don't have people who naturally recover from HIV. Whereas for coronavirus, the majority of cases are actually not severe. They don't, most people aren't hospitalized. So people's immune systems can defeat this virus. And that is a good sign for a vaccine. It, and one thing to to recognize about HIV is we don't have a vaccine, but we have profoundly changed the course of that disease with so many treatments uh, that can really turn it from a death sentence into a chronic disease. And you said that there have been a bunch of HIV researchers who have essentially switched gears once COVID became a big problem and are now part of this race for a COVID vaccine. But I wonder where that leaves HIV research and if there are concerns that this one disease that continues to be a huge problem around the world is going to kind of get left behind as everyone is trying to fix this other thing. There are definitely concerns that HIV and other conditions are going to be neglected during this time when when everyone's working on coronavirus. But one HIV advocate told me that 
they are inspired by what's happening. And their hope is that maybe we can take some of what we're doing after this pandemic is over and repurpose that to try and speed up the development of vaccines for HIV and for tuberculosis and and other diseases. Because Mm -hmm. what we are seeing is companies jumping in in a way that they haven't for some of these other infectious diseases. And there's also been a huge amount of government funding to try and what they call de-risk that research. So make it less financially risky to uh, embark on a vaccine development program. And so this advocate was telling me that his hope is that maybe some of the lessons from coronavirus could help spark new kinds of funding and incentivizing uh, vaccines against other infectious diseases once hopefully we are past this. And beyond HIV, whatever we learn from COVID vaccine development is going to help other infectious diseases. This hopefully means that next time, because there will be a next time, a new virus jumps maybe from an animal host into humans and poses a pandemic threat, we might be able to go even faster. So definitely we're going to learn quite a lot in the next year about vaccine development. And I think it'll bleed over into many other areas of medicine. Carolyn Johnson is a science reporter for The Post. I've spent the last four years reading way too many books about Donald Trump. It's it's sort of exhausting. But broadly speaking, there are two kinds of books. There are the deep biographies that have been done of Donald Trump himself. And then there are the books that are trying to investigate and explain what he's doing in the White House. This book is kind of a combination of the two. That's Carlos Lozada, the Post's nonfiction book critic. He's talking about a book called Too Much and Never Enough. It came out this week, and it's written by the president's niece, Mary Trump. Mary Trump is a clinical psychologist with a doctorate in clinical psychology. And most important, she is Donald Trump's niece. She is the daughter of Donald Trump's older brother, Freddie. And she has written a family tell-all. And before people even got a chance to read the book, there was a whole legal battle over whether or not it could actually be published. The Trump White House, they don't like books about Donald Trump or about what goes on inside the Trump administration. And previously, they tried to block uh, John Bolton's book, the book by the National Security Advisor, uh, and that, that also failed. The Trump family sued Mary Trump in an effort to block publication, saying that the book violated the terms of a like two-decade-old confidentiality agreement that was part of mm. an inheritance dispute during the 1990s. But a judge ruled that Simon & Schuster, the publisher, had no obligation under the family's non-disclosure agreements, and also that that old agreement was really meant to keep the details of that particular legal settlement private, not to necessarily keep Mary Trump from ever like, writing about her own family. And so it's out now, so people can read it. So the book is out now, it's everywhere, it's number one on all the bestseller lists. And the response from the Trump White House has been, you know, of course we haven't read it, but by the way, it's like full of lies. (laughs) Of course. So now that the legal dispute is over, 
and the book is out. Mary Trump is doing television interviews. She spoke to Good Morning America, for instance. All begins with your grandfather. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And there she emphasized that Donald Trump's father was sociopathic and that a lot of the reasons that Donald is the way he is is his constant effort to live up to his dad. You say he's a sociopath? Yes. What do you mean by that? He had no empathy. He was incredibly driven in a way that turned other people, including his children, his wife, into pawns to be used to his own ends. If somebody could be of service to him, then he would use them. Uh, If they couldn't be, he excised them. There's a lot of things where all we have to go on is Mary Trump's word. But it is the word of someone who literally was there. You know, if John Bolton's book was the room where it happened, this book is like the house where I saw it all happen, you know, as a kid. The sort of authority of not a biographer who, you know, interviewed people in the family, but someone who was there at like Thanksgiving dinners, you know, someone who heard all the stories growing up and someone who has seen this family about as as up close as you can get. And so the book feels authoritative in that regard, even if there are moments when it's Mary Trump telling you, you know, things that she heard from relatives or things that she saw without other independent verification. So I've heard a couple of the like big revelations from this book about President Trump, which I don't find, frankly, that surprising if they are true, that, you know, that he cheated on his SATs and hired somebody else to take the test for him, stuff like that. Yes, there's a lot of that. And that's been getting some of the attention. But it's one of those things that is shocking without being at all surprising about Donald Trump. So for instance, yes, uh, Mary Trump says that First of all, his older sister, Marianne, did all his homework for him when he was at Fordham University before he transferred to Penn, that he paid a buddy of his to take the SATs for him. Also, that Donald and his various wives were all like really cheap come holiday time. You know, they would re-gift old gift baskets or handbags that, you know, seemed to be fancy, but you found out were actually used because they had a used piece of Kleenex in them. So all these details, all these stories about Donald Trump that are getting attention, you know, they're fine, they're surprising, but they're not unexpected, but they're not really what this book is about. And they're certainly not the most interesting thing. And what does this book tell us that we don't already know about President Trump and about his family? Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things that I find interesting about the book is that even though Donald Trump is on the cover He's the world's most dangerous man, according to the subtitle. He's not really the focus of the book. This book is really about Fred Trump, Donald's father, Mary's grandfather, who Mary depicts as a cruel and controlling and emotionally unavailable presence for the family, and the impact that this man had on his kids, particularly Donald Trump, but also Freddie Trump, Donald's older brother and Mary's father who really struggled to live up to his father's expectations, who was supposed to be the one to take over the family business, but had no interest in doing it, and who really was just devastated by the lack of approval and affection from his father. Donald reacted to that 
environment differently and decided to be as Fred Trumpy as he could be. And a lot of the qualities, you know, his bullying, his, his lack of empathy, his relentless self-aggrandizement, these are things that Mary Trump says that he both emulated in his dad, uh, but also was kind of driven to in order to uh, gain his father's approval. And one of the big messages is that really Donald Trump is, is who he is in large measure because of his father, because Fred Trump was such this, this you know, controlling, cruel figure. She calls him a, a high-functioning sociopath, that Donald's response to that was simply to emulate those tendencies, to decide that he's going to go through life as if he has not worrying about having his emotional needs unmet because he has no emotional needs, right? He doesn't need anything. And he reacted very differently from other members of the family who really buckled under that, that pressure. So Mary Trump is claiming that Donald's compulsive lying, his lack of empathy, which is something that everyone who works with him and writes books focuses on, um, that these are all outcomes of growing up under Fred C. Trump. And I went back to look at Donald Trump's Art of the Deal to see how he talks about his father in that book to see if there was anything that would contradict what Mary Trump is saying. And really, there's no moments that I was able to find where he talks with any sense of like deep love or affection about his dad. It's more like, look, I learned a lot from him about business, about being tough in a tough business. And it's sure, that's, that's, certainly, that's certainly part of the story. But I didn't find anything in Trump's own memoir that necessarily contradicted what Mary Trump is saying. And what are some of the, the moments or anecdotes from the book that stuck with you about how that transpired over the course of these kids' childhoods? What you see in this family is just, there's no moments of real affection, of love, of encouragement that people in families sometimes try to give one another. You know, Mary Trump sees it mainly through the eyes of her father. And for instance, Fred Trump was constantly judging Freddie um, because, you know, he wanted to be a, a commercial airline pilot. And that was such a dumb thing to aspire to. You know, like a glorified bus driver in the sky. You know, he would kind of insult him in that way. And Donald, who was seven years younger than Freddie, really picked up on it. Oh, wow. And there's moments, there's moments, for instance, when you know, Freddie tries to take initiative in the family business and Fred Trump Sr. just tears into him and mocks him in front of all the staff and uh, says, you know, Donald would have never have done this. He's like 10 times the guy you are. And at that point, Donald's in high school. You know, he's off at a military academy that they sent him to because he was such a screw up in school. And so a lot of that is happening. Now, obviously, Mary Trump you know, she lays her cards on the table. She has a clear axe to grind. Here she feels that her father got a raw deal and that she got a raw deal. Part of the issue is that when her father passed away before her grandfather. So once her grandfather died, Mary Trump and her brother did not inherit, say, theirs da their dad's share of the estate. Hmm. Rather, it was simply kind of erased. And that money was split among the other four siblings. It was almost like Mary and her brother were penalized for their father's death. And mm. that launched this whole legal dispute 
So in her mind, this wasn't just a, a battle over money and over inheritance. It was a battle over being seen as like a legitimate or valued part of the family. She was estranged from the family for a long time. And there's there's a, a scene in the book where she's invited to Ivanka's wedding and she hasn't seen the family members in years. And she shows up and she starts talking to her Aunt Marianne, the oldest of the Trump children. And her aunt didn't even know that Mary Trump had an eight-year-old daughter, right? That's how, that's how distant this family was. That's how mm. little kind of relationship building there was in, in the family. And what does Mary Trump bring to these accounts from the perspective as a clinical psychologist? Like, how is she able to speak to a part of the president and the president's family that other people haven't really unearthed before? Right. So while there's been a lot of armchair diagnosing of Donald Trump over the last four years, Mary Trump is still diagnosing him from afar. It's not like she's, you know, evaluated him extensively, but she's closer than most people are ever going to get to sort of seeing how, how he functions in this family. So she feels that he has a lot of the traits of antisocial personality disorder, which includes arrogance, disregard for others, criminal tendencies, or dependent personality disorder, which is the inability to make decisions or take responsibility, discomfort with being alone. Now, she doesn't always give very specific context or details for this and as to how she understands her uncle's state of mind, but she's certainly closer than a lot of the people who've been trying to do this over the last four years. And Mary Trump has been talking about this assessment of the president very openly. She brought it up in an interview this week with NPR. I mean, if you're in a, a room with him for two minutes and you're paying attention, you know that he's not doing well. Psychologically, he's absolutely unfit. Emotionally, psychologically, he's absolutely unfit. But to be clear here, even though Mary Trump is making these accusations about the president's mental health, I mean, we there is no public knowledge that he's actually been diagnosed with any of the things that she's saying. That's absolutely right. But even she admits that, look, to really get an accurate sense of Donald Trump's mental health, he would need to submit to a sort of a battery of tests and evaluations that that he would never agree to anyway. She has this this interesting turn of phrase. She says that Donald Trump has been institutionalized his entire life. What does that mean? What she means is not that he's been in an institution treated for, for men mental health issues, but rather that he's been constantly shielded from his shortcomings. Hmm. That his father was always there to bail him out of any personal or financial trouble he was getting into. And frankly, now that the federal government and Mary Trump's telling also exists to protect Donald Trump's ego, right? And to retroactively try to make logic out of things that he does that may or may not actually be logical. She feels that the function that the family often performed for Donald Trump is now being performed by all of his advisors and by the federal government that is often enlisted hmm. to make sense of what he's trying to do. Because that's part of what is so strange about being the president. You actually have limited access to the outside world and that only a relatively small amount of people are, are in contact with you. And it seems like that is part of what makes it possible for President Trump to have a sense of the world that is dramatically different from reality, it seems, in some cases. What's interesting about that is that 
For most presidents, that's a big change. That's a shock. Once they become president, they're trapped in the bubble of the presidency, and they're always striving to find ways to get out of it. Donald Trump has sort of always lived that way. He is insulated from the world, and in Mary Trump's telling, he's insulated from the consequences of his actions. Carlos Lozada is the nonfiction book critic for The Post. And now, one more thing. Hey guys, what's up? This is Ben Golliver, the national NBA writer for the Washington Post. I'm here at the idyllic Walt Disney World Resort where the NBA is hosting its bubble for the next three months. The plan is to play 88 regular season games followed by a full playoffs on the campus of Disney World. Ben is one of 10 journalists who are embedded in this NBA bubble. He's been there for about a week now, quarantining inside of a Disney resort in Florida. And he's been taking videos of his experience. I'm going through a one-week quarantine period in my hotel room, which means I cannot leave for any reason. I'm actually wearing a green wristband. That tells security if they see me walking around the campus, they better stop me and bring me back to where I'm supposed to be. I'm gonna give you a quick week. I do have a window. The window does not open, but uh, you know, you're able to kind of see a little bit of the courtyard. You can see some of the other hotel properties out that direction. And then, you know, really the only time I leave for any reason uh, is to get my nightly coronavirus test. The technicians come, they stand right here in front of my door, swab my nose and swab my mouth um, to basically get uh, tests. So they just knocked on my door as I'm filming these videos for you guys. This is going to be lunch. The great reveal arrives just like this. Couple bags. See what we got. To be honest, the meal portions are some of the most exciting times of our day when we're stuck. So the major question I've been getting from everyone is, do I feel safe in the bubble? Does it feel different than average society? So you got a little salad there. I would say that I was locked down very tight in my own personal bubble back in California. I live in Los Angeles. Basically didn't leave my apartment for any reason except for some fruit on top. One thing that struck me is just how big this complex is and how empty it feels. I mean, the NBA's bubble does have more than a thousand people when you add up team employees, when you add up players, when you add up media members. And a thousand seems like a lot, but these hotels here are designed to hold tens of thousands of people. Applesauce or some, something like that, I don't know. So it does seem fairly spread out um, and vast. As I was driving in, there's all these parking lots that are completely empty, which you would expect, you know, normally during July tourist season uh, would be packed to the gills here at Disney World. People have also wondered, you know, what's my confidence level? Are they going to be able to pull this thing off? And the entire stay is projected to last something like 94 nights. And that's such a big and intimidating number that it's hard to really even wrap your mind around this idea. Are they going to be able to get three months of basketball played successfully? 
I am pretty confident, though, that they're going to get this thing started. You know, games begin on July 30th. It's not that far away. Teams have already begun practicing. They've already been, uh, you know, gone through extensive testing. And so far, there really haven't been any positive cases that have gotten into the bubble itself. And they're going to begin scrimmages next week. So everything right now is on track, according to plan. And I think it's a positive start, all things considered, for the NBA. Ben Golliver covers the NBA for The Post. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. Whenever I meet people who listen to Post Reports, I always want to ask them so many questions. Like, how often do you listen? What time do you listen? Do you listen while you're driving home from work or walking the dog or brushing your teeth? And maybe most important, why do you listen? Now we are asking those questions in mass. Our audience survey is underway and we want to hear from you. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash podcast survey. You'll also find a link in the show notes for today's episode at PostReports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.